I think that when you're in a, in a city where people care, it, it makes a big difference. Because frankly, there's a lot of cities where the people don't care and they just give up. And it shows. Uh, and I think that's why when I land at SeaTac, I uh, want to kiss the ground <laughs> when I arrive uh, because I recognize just how unique this city is and how unique the region is and uh, that people care. Hi, I'm Linda Dershing. 25 years ago, I opened my first bar, Linda's Tavern, in Seattle's Capitol Hill neighborhood. Today, my company, The Dershing Group, has opened 11 other spots for friends to get together. I'm passionate about this community and the creativity, acceptance, and character it breeds. Seattle fosters people's motivation to change the future of its culture for good. In this podcast, I get the chance to talk to several of those people about what makes this city one to watch. This is Uncharted Seattle. We're here with Jim Ritter. Jim's a police officer and has been with the Seattle Police Department for almost 40 years. His work focuses on creating a stronger and safer connection between the LGBTQ community and the greater Seattle community. Welcome, Jim. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. So you're the LGBTQ liaison at the Seattle Police Department. So what does that entail? Tell us a little about it. Well, it's funny because this position was just uh, developed uh, full time uh, through Chief Kathleen O'Toole. I've been here for five years and uh, love it. I think that uh, what surprised me was people started calling and wondering why hate crimes were going up in the city. And uh, they, I said, why, why do you think there's an increase in hate crimes? And, and, and when were they increasing? Well, this was a public perception based on a New York Times article okay. that came out that prior summer of 2014. So when they said, well, we think it's going up because it's been happening more to my friends and to me. And they started telling me about situations that where they had been victimized and uh, the situations were not matching up with the reports. And I thought, well, did you report this? And, and they go, no. And I go, well, why on earth wouldn't you report it? And they said, well, because I'm not out and I don't want to out myself on a police report. And I don't necessarily know where the cops stand on this or necessarily trust them to, to care because, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, they may have been very correct in assuming that. So the idea was to get these victims to report more. And uh, we developed the Safe Place Initiative five years ago. And uh, it has worked very well to uh, collaborate with the businesses and the police department to work with the victims of hate crime, encourage them to report more. I think what's interesting about any subculture, whether it's the LGBTQ subculture or the police subculture, unless there's some communication there, one doesn't necessarily know much about the other. And so it's, it's the job of every officer, including me, to uh, let folks know that uh, the police in Seattle of the 1960s, when it comes to the LGBT community, is not the same police as it is in 2019. I know the community has really embraced Safe Place. How have local businesses gotten involved? Well, when I designed this and started designing it in 2014, I knew what the statistics were, and I knew that majority of these crimes were occurring in the central business district or business districts throughout the city. They weren't necessarily happening in the residential community. So we knew we needed to do something rather quickly. You know, the fact that all of these folks were calling me and not reporting was very concerning because the police department it's impossible for us to respond to things that we don't know are going on. Right. We can't devote resources to them. And uh, the victims, 
you know, for whatever reason, don't report, just like a lot of the victims didn't report back when I was a kid, I knew we had to get the business community involved. So we contacted a few business owners, uh, contacted the media, just casually, just asking, well, how would you as business owners think about having a decal on your door, giving your employees some basic training to do only two things? And there's only two requirements for the Safe Place Initiative. That's to, if a victim of any crime, but especially a hate crime, comes into your establishment, that you call the police on their behalf. And the second requirement is you allow them to remain on your premise and safety until the police arrive. Then it's up to us as the cops to get there, take the report, make the arrests, uh, get the victim treatment, and then the courts to take the appropriate action. So when you go by a business and see a safe place decal, it lets the victims know that it's safe to go in there. It also lets the suspects know that more business owners are working with the police. Well, a suspect's worst nightmare is when the police and the community are getting along. When they're not getting along or there's conflict, the suspects continue to do their thing because all the distractions are going to all the negative attention and their behavior continues. Uh, we had 55 business owners sign up in less than four hours with none of them turning us away. And this is a voluntary program. They're not mandated to do this. They, they do it because they want to. And within days, we started getting requests from businesses outside the city of Seattle. And the media attention was immense. Um, we were getting called from all over the world, including Japan, whose producer wanted to send a crew out from Tokyo to film us engaging with the public on the Safe Place Initiative. And I said to the producer, I said, why on earth would you be sending a film crew out all the way from Tokyo at that kind of expense, especially to talk about a program like this? And she very distinctly told me, she goes, you know, this is something that we don't talk about in this country, and it's time to have that conversation. That was a pretty poignant moment, and that was a cultural shift for Japan's only media that reaches out to, I think it's nearly 80 million people. It's, it's a lot of folks. They have one uh, broadcasting station in Japan. So that showed me that there was interest to the degree that it's, this conversation is ready to be had by this country and other countries now. Whereas before it wasn't really talked about, and it certainly wasn't talked about where a police department was developing and sponsoring and overseeing and encouraging this kind of interaction to happen. Wow, that's fantastic. So what is it about Seattle that helped make Safe Place so successful? Well, I think that when I, when I travel to other cities, I always uh, come back to our city and I'm very appreciative of the fact that uh, Seattle is a very open city for the most part. Uh, we were one of the first cities, if not the first city, to have domestic partnership protections back in the 70s, which was unheard of back then. Um, we were the first police department to hire females in 1911. We hired our first African-American officer in 1890. That tells you something about the history of this city um, that makes it unique, where other cities kind of just wait around until something bad happens, and then sometimes they're forced to change when they're not really ready to. What do you think other cities in the U.S. can learn from Seattle? Well, it's not what I think they can learn. It's what they're learning right now. The other thing that happened was we started getting calls from police departments all over the world about this, including Canada. Our first uh, city that contacted us was Birmingham, Alabama PD. And I thought that was pretty significant historically in that, uh, you know, being a kid of the 60s, I remember what went on in Birmingham uh, towards diversity issues, and none of it was good. So for them to be calling, wanting information about this program uh, was pretty significant. 
I think it surprised me. It surprised my chief. I think it surprised, it probably surprised Birmingham. But again, they had heard about this program and they go, wow, I want another police department's doing this. And the public response is good. I also got calls from police chiefs who were not out themselves. They were gay, but they were in the closet. It had been all of their careers. And they called and thanked us for starting this program. And they started having that conversation in their own jurisdiction. Then major U.S. cities started contacting us uh, and adopting our program. So for for me to be doing this for this many years, you, you realize that bureaucracies take a long time to change. It's a big ship to turn around. And especially when you're dealing with socially sensitive topics. And so when you have a police department starting the conversation and the dialogue and then taking proactive measures to do something, um, it's new. And I think a lot of other police chiefs looked at Seattle to see how this was going to play out. And when they realized that the positive response was there, that the reporting of the hate crimes was increasing, not because any more were occurring in the city, just because the victims were feeling more confident to report. They liked that because it's a ready-made program. We also, and this is what really surprises me, start getting calls from suburban and especially rural jurisdictions, including small sheriff's offices in this state and around the country that never talk about this. But they're starting to realize that diversity affects their communities as much as it does ours, only at a smaller scale. They recognize that LGBTQ folks and other minorities travel through their counties or recreate in their counties, have family in their counties. And so uh, we're, we're thrilled that it's taken off as it has and uh, no regrets on my part. For more stories like these, watch the Uncharted Seattle video series at visitseattle.tv. You could be a policeman anywhere in the country. What makes Seattle special to you? Well, I was, I was born and raised here. This is my home. My, my daughter lives here. My family lives here. My friends are here. You know, the, the benefit of traveling around the world, and especially around the country, is that you recognize that when you, you make comparisons between, you know, your home agency and other agencies. And I think a lot of people assume that Seattle needs to be a lot better and is never good enough. Those folks who live here and may not get out very much and just assume that that every other place is better until they until you get out and you see the fact that every other place isn't better. The grass isn't always greener there. And a lot of, of these communities are struggling with issues that we've addressed years ago. Uh, and I think that's why when I land at SeaTac, I uh, want to kiss the ground <laughs> when I arrive uh, because I recognize just how unique this city is and how re unique the region is and uh, that people care. I think that when you're in a, in a city where people care, it, it makes a big difference because frankly, there's a lot of cities where the people don't care and they just give up. And it shows because cities that don't change or are afraid to change sometimes die on the vine. Innovation has always been in this city, including the police department. You know, a lot of people think we started practicing community policing back in the 90s. Well, we were practicing community policing back in the 20s when we had our own police department radio station that would play jazz on Tuesday and Thursday nights and talk about police community issues. This is in 1923. Most of our officers don't even know this. And I can guarantee you most of the public doesn't know about it because the police department has never been very good about promoting themselves. Uh, you know, we were seen as a force that was needed to handle emergencies. And after those emergencies were over with, the public didn't see us and we didn't share a lot. 
so I think seeing these changes, seeing the amount of collaboration this department has with the community, seeing the change in the subculture within our officers and how they um, really enjoy doing their jobs, um, I, that's a great change. So when did you start seeing the, the shift with the police department and the officers um, towards the LGBTQ community? Well, I, I remember specifically when I was assigned to Capitol Hill. And again, just because I was gay doesn't mean I was hanging out with gay people. I was assigned to Capitol Hill in 1984, uh, right in the central uh, district where the bars and the clubs were. And as uh, you may remember, if you're of that generation, the, the clubs were booming back then. And the sexual revolution had taken place over the last 10 years. And so I'm around an environment and I'm, I'm seeing officers not really interacting that much. And so my squad, actually my partner, my work partner and I decided to go into one of the gay restaurants on Pike, which, you know, Pike back in those days was high crime and mm -hmm. climbing. So we were going in the restaurants in uniform and eating. And uh, contrary to what used to happen, we were actually paying for our meals, right? But they, the, the citizens that were in the restaurant were looking at us like, you know, what are the cops doing here? Because a lot of those citizens remember when the cops would come into the gay bars and restaurants in the 1960s, they were there for a different reason. When they realized that we were there and eating and talking to the owner and the manager, they started coming over to the table. And I, I had this question asked of me years ago and when I really realized things were changing within the police department. And I remember one night when I, my whole squad would eat in this restaurant and we had, you know, eight patrol cars out in front. Everybody that didn't know any better thought there might've been a crime going on, but we were all in there eating and having a good time with all the restaurant patrons. And, and, uh, I remember one time in particular, I heard this chortling from one of our veteran officers who had hired in the, in the early sixties. And, uh, I looked over to see what the, all the commotion was about. And he and this drag queen who was sitting on his knee were laughing it up. And I thought, I never thought I'd live long enough to see this, but it was happening. So I figured if a veteran that was w far older than I was, was able to come in there and it took a while for him to come in. A lot of these officers were very nervous about being seen in a restaurant because they thought maybe others would think they were gay too. Uh, but that started changing and shifting the dynamics of the relationship between the police department and the gay community. When did you become a police officer? Is it always something that you've wanted to do? Well, I was hired as a deputy sheriff in eastern Washington uh, in 1980, two days before Mount St. Helens blew up Wow! Uh, when I was 18 years old. And uh, prior to that, I was a police cadet from about 1975 through 79 because I wanted to be a cop ever since I was 12. Uh, however, back in the mid-70s, I wasn't able to be a cop because they would still ask the question about your sexual orientation. And if you answered in the affirmative or you lied about it, you'd be disqualified. I mean, it was a lose-lose deal for me. Uh, right. Luckily, in the sheriff's office, I didn't have to disclose anything on a background because they didn't do a background back then. Now, when I got hired with Seattle in 1983, that changed. But uh, I've always wanted to do uh, the job of policing. Then at what point were you able to come out? Well, I did not come out on the small sheriff's office for obvious reasons. Uh, and I wasn't sure what my environment was going to be uh, when I came to the SPD. And I just wasn't sure what the new generation of SPD uh, was all about. I wanted to make sure that I was considered a good police officer first. And I would uh, 
observe what my environment was to see if it was safe to come out or not. It took me 11 years. Wow. It was a whole different world. It was um, you know, really hyper-masculine. Uh, we had a lot of World War II vets and Korean War vets that were still fully in charge of the department then. Uh, and, you know, being ex-military and such, uh, you know, that was not something that was really discussed or necessarily welcomed back then. But again, nobody talked about it. And so you're never really sure where everybody's at with the topic unless they talk. Mm -hmm. So again, I waited 11 years um, and uh, finally recognized the fact that I had relationships built within my squad and within my department. Um, I was on the police union, so obviously I knew a lot of people. And at one point in time, I thought, okay, I either continue to stay in the closet or I come out and be who I really am. And uh, I did that in a in a very discreet way with my squad first and with others on the department that I'd known since I was a kid. And uh, it worked out well for me. Uh, there was only one out gay male on the department uh, in 1983 when I came on and he stayed on for a few years and, and eventually left. So then there was none. I knew there were officers who were gay, but they certainly weren't out. Until when? When was it more common? In the 90s? I think in the 90s. I think you started seeing a major cultural shift in policing, especially in this department in the 1990s. Remember when I got hired uh, in 83 and certainly 1980, policing was around the country was a job. It was not a profession necessarily. The public expectations were very low, uh, you know, from the time policing started in the city in the 1860s, uh, training was low or non-existent, uh, you know, throughout the generations and it, it gradually increased and got better. Um, you know, in the 90s, technology changed, a younger generation came in, my generation started actually becoming a prominent presence within the police department, and the old guard was gradually leaving. They recognized that things were changing, just like I recognize things are changing after being here for 35 years, and a younger generation with different values and different outlooks towards things are becoming more prominent. What are some of the differences in their values and their outlook? Well, I think the one, the, the big difference I saw was the fact that when I got to be an officer in the 1980s, uh, the department was very segregated. And I don't mean racially, I mean compartmentalized from society. You know, the cops that got hired in my generation and prior were conditioned to only really associate with our own because just like uh, war veterans who recognize that what we go through, the stresses we go through, the unpleasant things we have to see out here, uh, we didn't share it with our families. We didn't share it with our partners. Uh, it was a very isolating feeling once you left the department because you didn't figure anybody could understand where you were coming from. Uh, plus, there was some you know, anti-police sentiment from the 1960s and 70s. Um, so we just sort of hung out with each other. And we partied with each other. We worked with each other. We relied on each other for our own safety and our lives. And then when we went home, you know, our families or partners or spouses, you know, didn't hear about what was going on in our jobs, in our lives, our professional lives. And it was a mystery to them. Well, that isolation causes other problems like alcoholism with some people, stress, um, a number of other things that none of which were really good. So the generation of officers in the 1990s were younger. They had civilian friends where my predecessors didn't necessarily hang out with civilians. And it was a, just a lot healthier environment where they could go home and share 
their experiences with their families, get that pressure off of them, socialize more. Mm -hmm. So what was it like being young and gay in Seattle when you were growing up? Well, I was raised on the east side in Bellevue. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the diversity on the east side back in the 1960s was almost non-existent. I think I had uh, two African-American kids in my school all the way through high school, just two. Wow. And I didn't know any gay people and really hadn't ever hung out with any gay people. Uh, my friends were all straight. I knew that I'd been gay since probably, you know, five years old. Uh, but it's one of those things you just didn't really want to talk about. And you certainly didn't share that with uh, other folks, especially in that generation. That was one of those uh, generations in, in history that you were a kid and to be seen and not heard. And you didn't talk about things that weren't socially accepted. Uh, and plus, you know, when I was younger, still trying to figure out what gay meant. You know, what did it mean to me? What did it mean in society? You know, I was raised watching television with Anita Bryant. Uh, talking about uh, that gay people are going to hell. I survived the uh, AIDS epidemic of the 80s, not knowing, you know, how that would affect me. And uh, frankly, you know, changing your shift and attitudes towards everything, including, uh, you know, who you dated, if you dated. Right. Uh, that was pretty significant. Right. And then you throw all that in, in combination with, you know, trying to be a cop uh, in, a, in a very um, rigid uh, professional environment. Yeah, there's a lot of stress there. Yeah, I bet. I bet. You've been in the city a long time. What are a few of your favorite hangouts? Well, I'm I'm uh, certainly a fan of a lot of the regular Seattle haunts. Uh, I'm certainly a Dick's Drive-In fan, and I think the fact that I'm 250 pounds proves that unconditionally, right? <laughs> love it. Uh, I love the... Uh, I love the kind of the mom and pop places around some hole in the walls that uh, I just learned about recently that so I have some of the best food in the city. I think every place has changed from when I first got here. Ballard, for example, was kind of a sleepy fishing town. Now I go to Ballard and I see all these new restaurants and these new places to hang out. And it's, it's so vibrant. It's like it's nothing like the place I remember as a patrol officer in the 80s. Uh, the, uh, the West Seattle is another example. A lot of these places are, are, are building and regentrifying, you know, which has its, its pros and cons, but it also brings vibrancy to some communities which need some help in, in establishing businesses that were sustainable. So I don't have a particular favorite. Uh, I, I like the variety. Uh, even though I still live on the east side, I come over to Seattle every day to work, obviously. And oftentimes we'll come over here at night and on the weekends to, to eat and uh, do things that I might not be able to do on the east side. So do you do things on the water at all? Kayaking or going I, I canoe boat? in the Arboretum on occasion. It's been mm -hmm. a little while. Um, take the jet skis out on Lake Washington once in a while. I love taking the ferry and, and seeing the city uh, coming back to the eastbound from Bremerton. And, uh, you know, the good thing about the city of Seattle is that you drive an hour and you can be in a completely different environment. A couple hours, you can be at the beach. I think it's a, it's a city that offers more than most cities I've ever been to. Yeah, I would agree. Jim, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. Can you tell us how to find you? Yeah, you can uh, find me uh, uh, by going to the spdsafeplace.com website. My phone number and email is there. It's uh, james.ritter at seattle.gov. Uh, we'd love to have you share this information with any business owners or community members you know. If they have any questions about police and LGBTQ relations, I'd be happy to talk to them. And I'm uh, pretty easy to get a hold of. Great. Thank you so much. You bet. 
To learn more about Seattle's inclusive LGBTQ scene, go to visitseattle.org slash LGBTQ.